0: Let's start. (laughs) So one of the most difficult parts about preaching a sermon is not what you put in, but what you leave out. Who said amen? I must... (laughs) So, generally speaking, in my sermon preparation, at the end, I have two documents on my computer. There's the final draft of the sermon, which is about 15 pages, and then there's the background document, everything I've left out, which is a good 20 pages. So, consider yourself lucky I've never kept all 35 pages. Hold that thought for a moment, it, it is relevant, I promise. We're continuing our sermon series, Enjoying God. And over the past few weeks now, we've been looking at scheduling specific time to focus on God. uh, And in particular, setting aside an entire day, one 24-hour period per week to focus exclusively on God. The Bible calls it a Sabbath day of rest, a day that is holy, set apart from the usual days and tasks and patterns, and Set apart for God I've tried as much as possible to take some of the sting out of this idea of a Sabbath day of rest because many of us grew up in churches where Sabbath Sunday was a day where you couldn't do anything fun at all and some of you have spent the last few weeks Telling me about some of the things that you couldn't do on a Sunday one lady said there's a child She wasn't allowed to knit on the Sabbath day but uh, what, what, what I think is that, that for many of us growing up, Sabbath was not a day of joy and delight. But in reaction to that, many of us have swung to the opposite extreme where we don't practice the Sabbath at all. And therefore, we continue to miss out on joy and delight. And I think that one of the chief ways in which we can learn to enjoy God is by cu- recovering this idea of practicing Sabbath delight. And it really is intended to be a delight. Uh, In these sermons, I've been trying to broaden our understanding of worship so that we don't necessarily think of Sabbath as just a day in which we go to church and read the Bible and pray. I would hope that Sabbath would include those things, but only in as much as they enable us to enjoy God. But going for a walk on Bloberg, having coffee with a friend, Reading a good novel with a cup of hot chocolate can all be acts of worship as we delight in God's world in our place in it and supremely in God himself. But this idea of taking one entire day to focus on God is so countercultural and nowadays even foreign to us as believers, that I think it's worth taking one last look at it in this series. Uh, And so I'm going to take some of the 40 pages left over from my last two sermons and use them to construct a sermon on this topic. One final look at practicing Sabbath delight. What I thought to do today was to have a look at how Jesus related to the Sabbath day. And I believe that there are five things, rather, that we can see. That Jesus kept the Sabbath, he disrupted the Sabbath, he declared himself to be Lord of the Sabbath, he fulfilled the Sabbath, and he promised Sabbath rest. And we're going to have a look at each of those briefly, one at a time, and then I'll take a couple of applications uh, as we go along. So firstly, Jesus kept the Sabbath day. Uh, Part of our focus has been looking at setting aside specific times to spend with God. So the first thing when we wake up, perhaps, or a morning quiet time, perhaps afternoon or evening prayer. And then that we need to take one specific day to focus our attention on God. And in fact, we see that same pattern in the life of Jesus. Jesus. The Gospel writers tell us that Jesus regularly scheduled time to be alone with his Father. So, for example, Mark chapter 1, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Luke chapter 5, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Luke chapter 6, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him. Matthew 14, after Jesus had dismissed the crowds, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was still there, alone. Luke chapter 9, once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? And Luke chapter 11, one day Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. So there are all of these times that Jesus set aside to be alone with his Father. But we also see that Jesus, as a Jewish man, regularly observed the Sabbath day. In Luke chapter 4, we read that Jesus went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. But if you read on in that passage, you'll see that he goes around to all of the different synagogues, which is the main place in which he did his teaching. Jesus was a Jewish man, circumcised on the eighth day, who ate kosher food, followed the Jewish customs, attended the Jewish feasts and festivals, and regularly practiced keeping the Sabbath day holy as God's law required. So I think the practical application for us as we head into this new week comes in the form of a question. There are probably many things on our to-do list this week, many appointments that need to be kept, a whole lot of things that we are anticipating. But what times have I already set aside to focus particularly on God? And is there perhaps one day... Maybe it's today where I would want my main focus to be exclusively on him. Second, we see that although Jesus kept the Sabbath, he also disrupted the Sabbath. We see this a number of times in the Gospels, but let's have a look at a passage from Matthew chapter 12. It's a whole block of material dedicated to Jesus' attitude towards the Sabbath. Matthew tells us, At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Jesus answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple desecrate the day and yet are innocent? I tell you that one greater than the temple is here, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. In his record of these events, Mark adds, Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there, looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. They asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath." Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. So Jesus did keep the Sabbath, but he disrupted the Sabbath by cutting through the rules and the regulations and the legalism of the scribes and the teachers of the law. You see, these were the men, and they were all men, who interpreted the law of God to the people, and they considered their law to be just as binding as the Mosaic law. But later on, uh, around 300 AD, these laws were written in a massive book called the Mishnah, the oral tradition which the teachers of the law said had been given at the same time as the Mosaic law. What they did was they took the individual laws where God's law says don't work on the Sabbath. They were the ones who asked and answered the question, well, what is work? And they classified all the kinds of things that were work. So they said that carrying a burden on the Sabbath day was work. But then you had to define what a burden was, and so they said that a burden is food equal in weight to a dried fig, enough wine for mixing in a goblet, milk enough for one swallow, honey enough to put on a wound, water enough to moisten an eye ointment, paper enough to write a customs house notice upon, ink enough to write two letters of the alphabet, read enough to make a pen, and so on and so on endlessly. There were long debates about whether you could lift a lamp from one place to the other or whether a man could pick up his child, whether if you threw an object up in the air and caught it again, whether that was work, or what would happen if you threw it up with one hand and caught it with the other. And that was just the category of burdens. There was a section on tying knots. They said you couldn't tie a knot on the Sabbath. but You had to define what a knot was. And so the knot of a sailor or the knot of a camel owner was work. And if tying a knot was work, then untying a knot was work, too. However, if the knot could be tied or untied with one hand, then that was a legal knot. There were some some other legal knots as well. So a woman could tie a knot in her skirt if it had split. She could tie her sandals, and she could tie a knot in her girdle, the ancient equivalent of a bra. Now here's what happened. If a man wanted to get a drink from a well on the Sabbath, he couldn't tie a rope to a bucket and let it down into the water because that would be work. However, he could tie a woman's bra to the bucket and let it down because it was legal to tie a knot in a bra on the Sabbath. To the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, these things were the essence of religion. Their religion was a legalism of petty rules and regulations. And Jesus, in fact, condemns them for this. In Luke chapter 11, he says, Woe to you, experts in the law, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Jesus cuts through the legalism of the Sabbath day and reminds his disciples and us that the Sabbath day was made for man, not man for the Sabbath day. And the Jewish people in Jesus' day needed to hear the second part of that sentence, the fact that human beings were not created in order to serve the Sabbath. But I suspect that for many of us, we desperately need to reclaim the first part of that sentence, that the Sabbath was made for us. It's God's good gift to us, an opportunity to rest, an opportunity to focus on Him. But we do need to avoid legalism. It's uh, so in- so easy to get caught up in it ourselves now and say, okay, well, we definitely have to observe Sabbath. And is it better to do that on a Saturday or a Sunday or a Monday? doesn't matter, according to Romans 14. You're no better off if you start from the evening or you begin in the morning. The important thing is to practice Sabbath, to spend time alone with God for a long period of time or with others for a long period of time, delighting in him, enjoying him. But thirdly, Jesus didn't merely disrupt the Sabbath. He claimed authority to do so by declaring himself to be Lord of the Sabbath. We read that a moment ago from Matthew 12. Jesus says, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. That is an extraordinary statement. Remember we said last week that the Sabbath day was the sign of the covenant between God and his people. And so to claim to be Lord over the Sabbath was to set yourself in the place of God It was an astounding thing for Jesus to say. There may be some folk visiting here this morning, and you're curious about this man, Jesus. Was he simply a good man, a teacher, a prophet, a great moral example? Well, notice something, we we, we notice something here in this verse that C.S. Lewis once noted. He said, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with someone who says he's a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for the fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus, in taking the the title Son of Man and saying he's Lord of the Sabbath, is claiming to be God. Fourthly, we can say that Jesus fulfilled the Sabbath. Now, I think it's worth spending just a few minutes here talking about how we interpret Old Testament law. It's a big subject. We can't get into everything. Uh, One of the best writers on this is a man called Christopher Wright, uh, Chris Wright. He's a missiologist. He's spent years on the mission field, an Anglican clergyman, an Old Testament scholar, and he's done some extensive work on the subject. I've got a couple of his books if you want to read up on it. But I can imagine someone saying, after our last two weeks looking at Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, but the Sabbath is part of the Old Testament. We don't have to obey the Old Testament laws anymore. We don't wear tassels on our clothes. We don't have to give up bacon. So why do we need to practice the Sabbath? And I'd respond to that by having a look at how Jesus approached the Old Testament law. We've already seen that Jesus kept the Sabbath day. But remember in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, "'Don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets.'" I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Oh boy, now, now what? Well, a couple of important things. Many people have the idea that God's people were saved by obeying the law in the Old Testament but are now saved by grace in the New Testament. But we've seen in our previous two sermons that that's not the case. We saw that God saved his people out of Egypt not because of anything that they'd done but purely by his grace. God doesn't come to the Israelites and say, here are some of my laws, obey them, and then I will save you. He saves them first, and then he gives them his law. So if the law didn't save them, what was the purpose of the law? In his book, Knowing Jesus Through the Old Testament, Chris Wright gives four important purposes, motivations for obeying the law. He said the first was gratitude. Sheer gratitude should trigger obedience out of a desire to please the God of such faithfulness and salvation. Secondly, imitation. Imitation of what God is like. This little phrase that's often repeated in the Old Testament law. It's a sort of a summary statement where God says, Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. The law was meant to enable Israel to be like Yahweh, their God. The third motivation for obedience was witness. Israel was meant to be holy, which simply means different, a different kind of nation, to draw other nations to God. So in Deuteronomy 4, just before the giving of the Ten Commandments, God says, observe these commandments carefully. For this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? The prophets describe Israel as being a light to the Gentiles. And fourthly, the Israelites obeyed the law because it was there for their own good. It was God's good gift to them. A little later in the book of Deuteronomy, God says through Moses, And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. And folk, the Old Testament pattern continues into the New Testament. We're saved by God's grace. We can't do anything to make ourselves right with God. Jesus takes our sin on himself, on the cross, and in return he gives us his perfect life. And in response to that, we obey his commands for exactly the same four reasons. Gratitude. Romans 12, verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. We love because he first loved us. Imitation, Ephesians 5, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. Witness, Matthew 5, You are the light of the world. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven and for our own good. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and life in all its fullness. And so, in fact, we obey all of God's commands, not just the New Testament ethical teaching, but some of the Old Testament commandments, too, because God's character hasn't changed. Now, in some instances, this is easier to see than in others. Uh, God's deep concern for the poor, for example, is vividly described in the Old Testament. In fact, the Old Testament is probably clearer about God's concern for social justice than the New Testament is. Admittedly, some of the laws uh, take a bit of work on our part, Uh, so unlike the Israelites, we don't live as subsistence farmers, and we don't have fields where we can leave some of the edges for the poor people to eat, but we can take some of the principles of those laws and apply them in creative ways to our own situation. Some of the ceremonial and sacrificial laws no longer apply to us because Jesus is our perfect sacrifice. But those laws still vividly describe and explain his sacrifice to us. As I said, it's a big topic, but it's an important one. (laughs) I think it's worth continuing to read through the Old Testament and the laws and see them as a paradigm for who God is and the kinds of things that he calls us to as his people. Jesus was the only one who kept the Old Testament law perfectly and completely. And not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law, too. In that sense, he fulfills the law, completes it for us. He, he in his person was also the fulfillment of the Old Testament law and the, and, and the person to whom the law pointed. And then finally, and with this I will finish, we see how Jesus promised Sabbath rest. We've seen this before, but it's important to see in the context. As, as we've seen, Matthew chapter 12 is this chapter that dealing with Jesus and the Sabbath and all of the controversies of the religious leaders with Jesus about the Sabbath. Um, but before we get there, in chapter 11, at the end of chapter 11, Jesus speaks these words. And they can only be a reference to the Sabbath day and the misunderstandings of the Sabbath and the legalism around the Sabbath. Before we get to chapter 12, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light." But although Jesus promises Sabbath rest, it's a promise in two parts. We experience rest in Jesus right now. He says to us, I will give you rest. So many of us are burdened and heavy laden, sometimes with religion, sometimes with all of these other things that we're going after. We're weary and burdened and Jesus promises us rest. It's a rest we can find nowhere else. One of the very first theologians, St. Augustine, uh, who was an African man living up in North Africa, uh, 300 AD, he put it best when he prayed like this, O oh Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. And We can experience that rest right now, In Jesus. But (laughs) the writer to the Hebrews reminds us that there is yet a future Sabbath day of rest for the people of God. Hebrews 4, verse 9. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. In other words, Sabbath now, spending time enjoying God now, whether that's for half an hour on a morning during our quiet time, time or for a full day that we call Sabbath, enjoying God now, going for a walk on a beach, delighting in nature, the very best of that is simply a foretaste of what we will one day fully experience with God forever in eternity. Pastor Pete Scazzera puts it this way in one of his books. Sabbath is an opportunity to experience a foretaste of eternity. On Sabbath, we practice eternity in time. We look forward to that day at the end of our earthly lives when we will perfectly stop, rest, delight, and contemplate the glory of God. For a brief moment in time, we reorient ourselves away from this world in all its brokenness and anticipate the world to come, how things on earth are meant to be. And so let me ask us are we regularly experiencing this foretaste of eternity? The Jewish rabbi Abraham Joshua Herschel once wrote, Unless one learns how to relish the State of Sabbath while still in this world, unless one is initiated in the appreciation of eternal life, one will be unable to enjoy the taste of eternity in the world to come. If we're not enjoying time with God right now, what makes us think that we will enjoy it for eternity? And if you aren't enjoying God right now, if life with God seems boring, then you're being bored by the wrong God. It's not truly the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ that you are bored with, because he's not boring. He's alive and living and real and exciting and surprising, even though it may take some time and effort on our part to discover that. And so in this week that lies ahead, let's set aside time to rest in him, to cast all our care on him, and to find that truly he cares for us. Amen.